0: is here. Please welcome your StudCast host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio.
2: Tony Basilio welcoming you too. Can you believe this? We're five weeks into this thing. We call the StudCast. It's 93 years. It's four generations. It's in the blood. The Tennessee Stud, the whole story is going to be told. It is your Tennessee StudCast. It is listener-supported. We're here to serve you, and when last we left you, the story of Roy has been told. Now we're moving on, and we're around the 1950 mark. Stud, as I welcome you into StudCast 5, boy, I'll tell you one thing. The imaging, the job that David Summers did, the man that runs the Dothan Territory of the StudCast, incredible. The man runs Dothan.
1: Yes, he does. He's actually, you know, he's in charge of it. several stations in, uh in the Dothan market and he's actually uh, the voice of uh, a Station in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. He gets around this guy. He's got great talent. I love his voice. I love how he presents things and uh, Really appreciate uh, him helping us out to uh, hopefully I think uh, bring qu- some quality to the openings and to the closings of every program. And uh, there's going to be lots of times now you'll be hearing on the interior of the program as well. And uh, really hats off to you. David, you do a tremendous job and uh, Tony and I both just really appreciate it.
2: No question about it. And when last we left you, it was 1950. It's time to introduce in a big time way, Buddy Fuller. First of all, Get back into Buddy and uh,
1: how the Fuller name came about. My dad, he was a funny guy, too. He had a lot of confidence. He wanted to make a name for himself. When he gets involved, there are four Welches already wrestling. There's Roy, who has wrestled now. There's Herb, whose career is waning. Jack, who did not wrestle for very long. And Lester Welch. Lester's almost the same age as dad, although they're in a different generation. Lester is Roy's youngest brother, 20 years younger than Roy, basically. And dad is about the same age as Lester. And Lester and dad form a great friendship and relationship because they're cousins, the same as uh, Jimmy Golden and, and Roy Lee Welch and Jackie Welch. That's Lester's sons are cousins to me and Rob and uh, I just arrived basically early 50s I'm two years old uh, Rob's a one-year-old Jimmy's about to be born Roy Lee Lester's youngest son's about to be born Jackie his first son is a little older than I am he's been around he's three or four years old now the younger future stars are starting to come the Fields brothers let me go back to dad and now he got that name He wanted to create a name for himself and a reputation for himself. And in order to do that, he couldn't figure out what name he wanted to use. And he went to a town to wrestle one night, which he had never been. It was in Louisiana, one of Roy's areas that was being run. There was another guy on the card named Buddy Fuller and Buddy Fuller didn't show up. And the promoter came to dad and he says, you know, we got a guy that didn't show up here tonight. His name is Buddy Fuller. Then dad was going to be introduced as Edward Welch. And dad says, he didn't show up. Has he ever been here before? And the promoter says, no. Uh, We just booked him and we don't know who he is or what he looks like. And dad says, okay, I'm Buddy Fuller. Just go ahead and introduce me tonight as Buddy Fuller. He liked the name. And for whatever reason, he liked the name. I'm not sure. He never really told me what he liked about it. But it was his name from that point on. And when Robert and I both started to wrestle, it just became pretty much for sure that we're going to wrestle as Fuller. Never really considered wrestling under the name of Welch. Obviously, we are Welches, but since his name was Fuller, we kept that name, probably because he was a star in Georgia at the time. And we started out in the state of Georgia, and it helped us to be bigger stars from the very beginning. It gave us a real leg up. And it was a wonderful opportunity for us to follow in the footsteps of a guy who had already made himself a star there. So that's kind of how dad got his name as Buddy Fuller. I'll just take it from here. We're in the 50s. Roy has his huge territory. It's spread everywhere, 12 states, 25% of America is under the control of Roy Welch. If you want to be a wrestler or you want to be a promoter. He's got an iron fist. He handles business in a way that nobody else does. He has created himself probably the first wrestling empire, the largest territory maybe in the history of wrestling. 1948, they formed the National Wrestling Alliance. Roy is a founding member of the National Wrestling Alliance. He's one of the biggest promoters in America and the world. To start with the National Wrestling Alliance, the National Wrestling Alliance was a conglomeration of promoters eventually in the 80s. It contained promoters from all over the world, literally all over the world. When you would go to those meetings in Las Vegas, they were four days long. And we worked. You sit and talk, you introduce different people, you got to learn how to do advertising, how to do your television programs. You learned everything about the business. You had an opportunity to gain the knowledge that others had created and at times to impart knowledge back to others. But those meetings in the eighties, you had two Japanese promotions. You had an Australian promotion. You had two Mexican promotions. You had several promoters that came out of Canada. You had Stu Hart in Calgary. You had Koninsky in Vancouver on the west coast. You had the maritime promoters on the far eastern side of Canada. You had the Montreal people. There were a great number of that came out of Canada and then you had all of the promoters from America. I can't attempt to get the names of everyone right, but every promoter in America, except for two that I'm aware of, one was Vern Gagne in the Minneapolis, and the second was Vince McMahon in the Northeast. Except for those two people, everyone was a part of this organization, the National Wrestling Alliance. and. To show you the strength and the power of the organization, even without Vern being a, a, a part of it and without Vince Sr. being a part of it, they attended those meetings and they were treated just like they were a part of it. All of those individuals sat in that big room. I'm a young guy. I look around and I'm amazed at, at the history in that room of the things that these guys have accomplished. They have respect the integrity of the entire group if they said I'm gonna do this for you they did it it was a powerful tool for guys to be able to continue to operate their own areas and they all agreed basically that if, let's say Fritz in Dallas Fritz von Eric in Dallas is going to be uh, competing with Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma And they're very close together. They said, look, these cities here is where I have my TVs. And I recognize where you have your televisions. And I'm not going to put my shows on to compete with you. And hopefully you're not going to put your shows into my cities to compete with me. There was a separation. It was the dividing of the continent of America amongst a group of guys that had worked their butts off to build these territories. Nobody gave them to them. They had to build them, and they had to find the television stations. They had to find the wrestlers. They had to get relationships with the buildings. They had to advertise. They had so many things that they had to accomplish in order to be successful, and they all recognized that in each other, that we're all in the same position, we're all in the same boat, and we shouldn't rock this boat. But when something happened, one of these promoters that he could turn to that organization and say, I did it myself. I took advantage of this myself in 1979 in Knoxville, Tennessee. I think I saw somewhere where somebody said, what happened? The way I fought back to keep what I had built myself by going to the NWA and asking for help. And I got what they described as the nuclear, the nuclear support. In other words, I got a, an atom bomb dropped on the other company because I produced cards for a length of time there that were far greater than any one independent wrestling promoter could have put together. It helped me to maintain and to keep my company as it was. So, going the NWA here, a little bit about Dad. Is that okay, Tony? We're starting the Dad.
2: Absolutely, starting your Dad. Before you do though. One thought for you. You had mentioned in one of our earliest studcasts talking about when Vince decided to make a move on everybody in the 80s and how at first it looked like, well, hey, this is going to be a good thing, a national promotion. But unintended consequences of that, just thinking about you telling your story there and telling the story of what you saw through the eyes of your father and his membership in the NWA. With those guys, you had territories to train young people coming up. So by the time they came up, you didn't have to feed them lines. They already had personalities. They had already found their voice. The way you had said that you in our previous stud cast had found your voice. I'm now the Tennessee stud and what this embodies. And nobody was writing promos for you. That's one thought. The second thought is you had a system set up where you could keep guys fresh because you could trade talent. So This guy is here, he goes across the country, he stays there for a while, works three or four programs, and then he goes about his merry way. So we have a healthy, vibrant system where in several cities in North America on any Friday, Saturday, Monday night, Thursday night, you have programs being run and you have a healthy and vital sport that actually takes care of itself. It's a shame that we don't have that system now. But I think about those men, and I don't know whether they realized it at the time, but the system they set up was really ingenious because it was self-sufficient, Ron, if you stop and think
1: about it. Oh, yes, each person. When you own the territory, you're totally responsible for it. And you did switch talent lots of times it wasn't necessarily the promoters that said i want your guy i'd like to have this guy i'd like to have that guy it was actually the wrestlers themselves sometimes when you said okay uh, you've been here for quite a while i really enjoyed working with you you're a great talent i'd love to have you back i need you to be gone my time period was normally about a year at least i would have let guys go for a year and they would handle it themselves. These guys were very self-sufficient. You were an athlete that was by yourself. You didn't have a team. You didn't have anybody booking your rides. You didn't have anybody booking your events. You didn't have anybody showing you how to practice. If you wanted to put your body and your time and your effort into being better, then that's where you got ahead. And if you didn't, you may remain the first match guy, or if you wanted to To do what you needed to do to be a main eventer then you had to put a whole lot more effort into it they took care of themselves they took it upon themselves to decide where they want to go most of them and those that had good names and that had talent they could go anywhere they wanted to and I was kind of an example of that I did that myself in 70 early 70s I was very green when I started down in Florida And by 1973, I had gone to Australia. I had gained a lot of experience, and I was in a position where I would pick up the phone. I used to ask Eddie, and my dad owned part of that company as well, and I would say, uh, I want to go wrestle a show for Don Owens in uh, Portland, Oregon. And I I want to do a a show in San Francisco, which I did. I've done the in Owens in uh, Oregon you could say, I want to go here. I want to go there. I want to wrestle on your TV. You want to gain that exposure. If you're going to be in this business for a lifetime, it gives you more opportunities. When you have been there and burned the bridge, so to speak, you've been there a long time and uh, you need a break, then you'd have a easy, it's easy for you to find a place to go because you're in demand in many parts of the country. And that's the way it worked for the Good boys, and for the guys that weren't so good, they had a harder time finding a place to go. And a lot of times, you'd try to help them. I would try to help those young guys. Lots of them just turned out to be tremendous talent. And I think we might have already talked about Sylvester Ritter, who went to Bill Watts and became Junkyard Dog and became a monster star. And I had him in uh, Knoxville, and didn't have a good spot for him, and. It was a business that perpetuated itself. It was organized but disorganized. You called occasionally and talked to another promoter and you would say, hey, how's business going? And what you got talent-wise, you got some guys you're gonna turn loose. Personally, I did mine a little differently. I like to leave my own territory. Starting in 75, I would go and wrestle in Georgia, I would go and wrestle in Texas. I would go and wrestle in different parts of the country, and I would watch the matches, and I would find the talent that I needed, and I would decide, this guy I want to get someday. That guy I want to get, I want to get. Canada. I got guys out of Canada, Joe LaDuke, and many guys out of Canada that were great, great wrestlers. So it was a unique business, a unique sport And just a pleasure to be in because it forced you to be creative. You had to be creative in your thought process. You had to be creative in your advertising. You had to be creative in your matches. You had to be creative. If that was good, if it was easy for you, and it luckily – It was pretty easy for me. It was pretty easy for my brother, Robert. Some guys that turn out to be great bookers have that creativity within them that just, it's a pleasure to see that develop and to make that happen. I didn't mean to kick you down
2: that path. Let's go ahead and go to Buddy now, your father, and let's get started on him and unpack Buddy Fuller.
1: Around 1950, there were televisions everywhere. My dad was sent by Roy to the tri-cities in the the northeastern part of the state of Tennessee. There's three cities there, Johnson City, Kingsport, and Bristol, Tennessee. Bristol's on the border of Virginia. Half that city lies in Tennessee. The other half lies in Virginia. He ran that area for Roy. It gave him an opportunity to see what it's all about, to, uh, to learn the ropes, so to speak, To learn how to advertise, to learn how to push your event, to learn a little bit about how to communicate with wrestlers and how to develop matches. It was a learning process for him. And that position there, let's just as an example, it was traded when Dad left Lester, Roy's youngest brother. He took his family and he worked that same area. He actually controlled and promoted that same area. So it gave Lester an opportunity to be a promoter. And Lester's history goes right along hand in hand with that. He's training the same place. In fact, the two of them trained another wrestling bear. They trained a bear around the 1950s, late 40s, 1950s. Ginger's gone now. She's long since gone and they want to train themselves a bear. They were still living in Dyersburg, and they took this bear, they pulled its canine's teeth, and they pulled its claws, which was customary as bears came along after Ginger. They didn't have their canines and their claws. And this bear, they used to take to work out in the ring. There's a great story about their bear is dad and him are in the front seat of their car. He doesn't have a trailer to take the bear in, So they load the bear in the back seat of their car. They're living in Dyersburg. It's on a Sunday morning. They take him to the gym, to the building that's got a ring set up. They pull up on the street corner, and there's a guy there who's been drinking. It's Sunday morning. So Saturday night, he had a few too many. He's there. He looks like he's got a hangover. Dad tells me this story. He looks like he's got a hangover. And he's kind of staggering and wobbling and weaving and he's waiting on the light to turn. There's only a couple of red lights in Dyersburg at that time. And the bear has his head stuck out the window because he's hot and he's huffing and puffing. He's got his tongue hanging out. And the bear is only a couple of feet away from the guy that's standing there staggering that's drunk. And dad sees the guy looking at the bear, like what in the heck? And dad goes, Hey, what do you think of my dog? And the guy goes, I thought that was a bear. And it really was a bear. You know, light turns green, Dad drives off, the drunk goes on, I'm sure. But he's got himself a story to tell. I saw a bear in the backseat of two guys' car today. They probably thought he was still drunk. It was different times, and these guys like Lester and Dad and the Fields Boys, they were starting to get positioned by Roy in different parts of the country. To give you another example, Ruby, my dad's sister, and Jimmy Golden's mother, Bill Golden and Jimmy and, and Ruby, they were positioned in the Montgomery of Alabama, central Alabama. and They ran television there and the area around that. So, there's family members now peering everywhere, and they're solidifying Roy's business. It grows from there. Dad goes there. He stays in Kingsport until 1954. In 1954, Roy talks to him. They have a conversation, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't obviously privy to it. I'm a young boy, first grader. And Roy says, go open the Gulf Coast. Go down and open everything from the panhandle of Florida all the way through New Orleans and into Louisiana. So my dad does that. We moved to Mobile, Alabama, and he gets a television in Mobile, WKRG, great station. I work with him 30 years later and buy that same business back again. KRG, he gets WTVY, big channel, great signal out of Dothan, Panama City, uh, Pensacola, Biloxi, Mississippi. These are television cities, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Shreveport. He's now building a huge area that was not a part of what Roy had previously. So that his territory is still growing. Now dad goes there in 54. Dad doesn't wrestle. I never could figure out why he didn't wrestle, but he did not wrestle there for two years. And I never knew the reason for that. He brings in great talent, the Fields boys. We've talked about them. That's Roy's sister, Bonnie's boys. She married Virgil Hatfield. Once they started wrestling, they changed their name to Fields. You have Lee and Bobby and Don Fields. They have sons. About the same time, they're having children of their own. Those are young guys that will all become wrestlers down the line. They are another set of future stars. The family is really exploding here now. We've got five, eight, nine, ten new people that are five to ten years old that are going to become stars in the ring down the line. So things are growing. He brings in the Fields boys. He starts to create his own crew. He doesn't like having to have wrestlers come from Nashville to Memphis and along the Gulf coast, you got the two lane highways. It's a long, long drive. So Royce says, okay, you can be that local promoter there and you'll pay booking 10% booking. I'm not going to send you the talent, but you'll pretty much own that area because he wasn't sending talent and he was collecting that 10%. He kind of allowed Dad to build his own business there. Dad was a hard worker. He was an intelligent guy, and he went in and talked to television people. He could have conversations with television people that most wrestlers or promoters couldn't have. He was impressive. He had a look about him and a certain charisma about him that people thought, this guy is going to be successful. And he always was successful. He was a tremendous promoter. He was a tremendous booker and he was a marketer that when I got in college at the University of Miami, I took marketing because I was impressed with the marketing job my dad did in so many different territories. So he had all these things going for him. He was also a Welch, which didn't hurt a thing. And he was in a part of the country that had never had wrestling before. So he's on television now. There's still no tape at this point. So you can't send your program. uh, You can't jockey it around from station to station, from state to state. You've got to send wrestlers to Dothan. You've got to send wrestlers to Biloxi. You've got to send wrestlers to New Orleans. Uh, You've got to cover the mobile station. There are different times. The programming is set up at different times. You've got to program in mobile, let's say at 12 o'clock. And your show in Dothan is at four o'clock. You've got enough time to wrestle to wrestle on TV and Mobile wrestle on TV in Dothan, and maybe wrestle on a live match in Dothan that night. And then you've got guys going the opposite direction. You've got guys that wrestle in Biloxi and wrestling in New Orleans, and they're wrestling in Shreveport that night. So the trips are huge. They're long and and difficult. And the matches themselves are difficult. The culture is really, it's still shoot background. Everybody that dad used, he had to be able to wrestle. And uh, so with that shoot background, you had some characters and you had fights, you had things that were going on all the time. It's not car fights like it was with Roy back in the thirties in the depression era, but it's guys that still have personalities and they're tough i'll give you an example dad and lester come out of a building one night and they have a guy named rocky Columbo wrestling for them he's a goofball but he's a great talent in the ring when they come out the front of the building Columbo is running past them and he has a guy chasing him and he comes past them, and he screams out of he goes look out he knows karate and he runs around the corner of the building. He runs all the way around the building. It takes him maybe 45 seconds. All of a sudden, he appears again. The guy's still chasing him, and he comes by him again, and he screams the same: look out! He knows karate, and he keeps running. Now, the guy's running right behind him. The guy's kind of catching him. He comes around the building again. He gets to him. He's almost to him. He screams it one more time, look out! He knows karate. And then he just stops and plants it, and this guy runs right straight into a punch, hits him right in the darn chin, knocks him cold. He goes down, bam, he's out. Columbo, now he's standing in front of Dad and Lester, by the where he hits him. He times it so that he stops right in front of him, bam, he knocks the guy out, and then he says, he knows karate, but it won't do him any good. And the guy lays there. It's, that's the mentality of what's going on with his wrestlers. They are all tough son of a guns. They're deadly when they get with people that say, well, it's all fake and it's all phony. It's dangerous to talk to those guys in those veins. And, you know, you talk about Colombo. There's a guy that later went
2: on and had some success up in New York and a, a guy who you're getting ready to introduce a character into our story here in Jack Pfeffer here momentarily, but that's a guy whose career was largely influenced by Jack Pfeffer. In fact, some of the names that you're going to be hearing, just to give you a sneak peek of what's coming your way and subsequent stud casts, it's going to take a while to get through these because there are stories affixed to each one, but Jose Lothario, Joe McCarthy, Rocky Colombo, who you just heard the stud talk about, the Medics, somebody called the Wrestling Pro. We're going to hear about Joe Scarpa. Told you about Jack Pfeffer. We're going to talk about the Fargos, and the Assassins, Paul DeMarco, Nick Bachwinkle, the Torres brothers, Leo Garibaldi. It's like a treasure trove, what you have at your fingertips. Yeah, it,
1: and he's rocketing here. He's taking this territory, this little territory of his own he's making, and he is exploding it. He has great talent. You've got these Fields boys and you've got Lester. Now, Lester comes, he leaves the Tri-Cities and Tennessee, and he comes and he's added to this mix. You have five Welches in this group of wrestlers, the three Fields boys and Lester and Dad. They are kind of like the leaders of the pack. Everybody looks to them for toughness, for attitude, for hard work in the ring. And dad doesn't have to wrestle. I think that's why he didn't wrestle to begin with. So he's building this thing and the crowds are growing. Television is just kicking wrestling up another notch because it's a great medium for television. Wrestling is perfect for it. And you've got this growing audience and you don't have but two channels in a lot of these cities, three at the most. And You've got your ABC, your NBC, and your CBS, and that's all there was. You don't have cable. You don't have any other choices, so there's not a lot of programming on there, and they're getting these big, big numbers because they're exciting people. They're making fans out of people that have never seen the sport before. And it's growing to the, such a point that, that Dad decides, I've never talked to him about this, but that, this is the way I feel this all went down. Dad decides that he wants to wrestle finally. This is 1958 or so now. And there's a guy there named Mario Galento. We've talked about him briefly. I think we had a little conversation about him the other day. A tough, really and charismatic guy, was in the movies. He became a movie star. Uh, He had long black hair, in tremendous shape, thin body, abs. He had abs when abs weren't around. That was very unusual to see somebody that had abs. He worked out hard. He ran every day. He trained like nobody else did. He was such a fanatic that he would ask his guys to bust each other. It was called a hard way. He would say, uh, I'd like to see something happen in the match, and uh, I'd like for you to bust his eye. And those guys would they would go for it. And then he started saying, okay, I will pay you $25 extra if you get hard weighed, if you let somebody bust your eye. And one week, I think Galento got $125 at the end of the week, so he busted his eyes five times during the week. Dad starts this... Program with Mario. It's never been done before nor since is, that I'm aware of. And and they get into fights actually downtown in Mobile. They run into each other in a restaurant and they get into a fight. The police are called. The police come in. The police can't hardly break it up. They just bust each other. They're bleeding. They're taking bumps. In fact, in one fight. Dad told me he drug him outside. The cops had backed off because they couldn't stop it and they didn't want to shoot him. So they just kind of backed off and let him keep going. And he dragged Glento out and he had parked his Cadillac out front and he slammed Glento's head face first into the hood of his Cadillac and dented the hood in his Cadillac. They had a couple of these bouts in the city of Mobile. And then he said, I'm going to wrestle. Now, he had been basically the promoter all those first years, for four years, basically. He was the promoter, and he didn't wrestle. Now he has a new star. People don't know whether he can wrestle or not, but he can damn sure wrestle. He was a great wrestler. So... He wrestles against Mario Galento, 1958. It was such a big event, he gets Joe Lewis. Now this, you know, Vince, everybody says, well, you know, Vince had the big shows. He was the first one to have these big stars and all that come. Well, that's not true because my dad did it in Mobile in 1958. He went into Ladd Stadium because there was no structure, no building, nothing, no baseball park that would hold that many people and they drew 40,000 people in 1958. The main event was dead against Mario Galento, and the referee was Joe Lewis. And in that match, it was a five-minute long match. I have seen pictures of that match. I wish I had kept them. I never saw two guys bleeding as bad as they were bleeding. Actually, the match only lasted five minutes. There was an athletic commission at the time. The athletic commissioner came down to the ring and threw the towel in and stopped the match, said, this is it. We'd, they wouldn't quit. He got on the microphone and says, you've got to stop this. There was nobody sitting in the first three or four rows of ringside because they were, the blood was flying out into the seats. I remember my dad, after that match, The next day, his face was so swollen, his eyes both were black and closed, swelled out of his face so that they stuck out about two inches outside of his eyeball sockets. And he was like that for two weeks. My mom had to drive him around in a car because he could not see for two weeks. And after a couple of weeks, I'm a kid. I'm in the second grade, I think, second or third grade when this happens. He goes to the mirror in the house that we live in, over the fireplace, and he opens his eyes with his fingers. He puts it over his eyeball, and he opens it up. It's still swollen shut, and blood squirts out of his eye onto the mirror. He's got that much blood after two weeks still in his eyes. Glento had... 75 stitches he had busted his right eye in five places above it below it the side of it and his eyes were black as well he wrote a book and the back cover of the book was the picture of him after that match that's how business was being run in the 50s
2: I'm just picturing that what that scene must have been like and how these guys as you say busted each other up the hard way there's a certain amount of respect you got to have for the other guy because you don't want to kill him. But at the same time, we're here to make this appear to be as real as humanly possible. What kind of relationship did Galento and your father have outside the ring?
1: They wrestled three times for sure that I can remember. All three of those matches were crowds of 30,000 or more. They had a tremendous amount of respect. They never communicated. I was a kid. I was not privy to what was going on. I just went and watched. In fact, that match, I wanted to go very badly. They were in Ladd Memorial Football Stadium where they played for many, many years the All-Star Game, the college All-Star Game. One half of the stadium is totally full. They've got 5,000 ringside seats on the field and another 5,000 people standing behind those ringsiders. I saw a picture of it. I wish I had saved some of these things. It was astounding. It was a shot from the far side, from the other stands, and to see that many people at a wrestling event, to, to spoke volume as, as to how hard he had worked and how successful he had been in building that town and that area. We're there at that time, and it would kind of change gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about how we were raised. Rob and I, we're young boys at this point. We love to watch it on TV. We don't get to go to many matches. He doesn't take us to many matches. He did take us to one match that I can remember. And back in those days, there were these guys. This was gorgeous George era. And there was a guy came through. He was Davy Crockett. I'll tell you what, Stud.
2: Hold that thought, can you?
1: Yeah, Let's pick it
2: up. Let's pick it up on the other side. As we remind you, what we're doing here, it is the stud cast, ronfullertennesseestud.com, ronfullertennesseestud.com. Also on Facebook, Ron Fuller Welch. Again, the Facebook address is Ron Fuller Welch. And if you would like to like Ron there, ask questions at either place. In fact, we're going to get to some questions on the other side. Let the stud finish his story about one of those matches in the golden era that he got to see and some memories from there as we continue on your StudCast right after this.
0: The StudCast continues in one minute after these important StudCast offers attention stud fans why not cruise over to the new website at tennesseestud.com that's t-n-s-t-u-d t-n-stud.com the stud store is opening soon a couple of photos are posted now and they'll soon be for sale and coming soon to the stud store t-shirts a Tennessee Stud video and stud cast numbers 1 through 5 on CD for fans who want a wrestling keepsake to hold on to for the rest of their lives these are going to make great gifts and they'll be perfect for sharing with your friends and enjoying them forever it's also a great gift for grandpa grandma remember they were stud fans too we appreciate the tremendous response from all over the world as fans go stud crazy on the hottest new wrestling podcast on earth tell your friends about us and Saturday Battle up each week as wrestling history is told in storybook fashion by the one and only Tennessee Stud. You are back seated ringside on this edition of the Ron Fuller Studcast.
2: Tony Basilio
0: back with you.
2: Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller is joining. Ron, you were telling us there about a match that you went to. You didn't go to many. As a youngster, we getting ready to share some stories with you about your uh, formative days And pick your story back up, and then we've got to get to some listener mail today, because the stud mail is always a highlight of what we do here.
1: Yeah, like I was saying, a guy named Davy Crockett. I mean, uh, you know, Walt Disney's big. This is early 50s. Uh, Walt Disney's one of the shows that's on TV, and uh, we're kids, and we watch Walt Disney, and they had the Davy Crockett series. And so this wrestler's got some ability. I, I don't remember the match at all, to be quite honest with you. But I do remember he said, okay, well, tonight I got Davy Crockett on the card. And so we got to go. Guy wore the coonskin hat and the same stuff as Davy Crockett. And it was just part of that era. Wrestling was changing. Shooters were beginning to be fewer and fewer. And gimmicks we're beginning to be more prevalent. Gorgeous George started that whole thing. He's the one that got all of that going. From Gorgeous George came Davy Crockett. This guy is a, a, a kind of an example of it. Uh, there were a lot of guys now that didn't have as much talent. Actually, Gorgeous George was good. He he was he knew some shooting, and. And he was a, such, a, such a flamboyant character. He's like a Liberace uh, before Liberace. He set the tone for the change in wrestling that came with television. And I may be the first to coin these things. I hadn't really thought about it, but that's exactly a good explanation of what that is. is he got this thing started where you didn't have to be a great wrestler to start drawing money. He was a good wrestler, but he wasn't the great wrestler. I remember one story. Dad said he wrestled him. I asked him one time, did you ever wrestle Gorgeous George? And he said, yeah, I did. And he says, in the match, somehow I broke his finger. He said, uh, Gorgeous George, he said, he said he cried like a baby. You know, he was like, oh, you broke my finger. You broke my finger. And he was like, oh, goodness gracious, come on. You know, you you don't, Are you that much of a wuss? And speaking of that, I'll give you an example. I broke my finger one time. I had a world championship match with Harley race and Ron Wright in Knoxville came down to the ring prior to the match starting. And I got in an altercation with him. He had a tie on and a shirt. He never wore ties, but for some reason he had a tie on and a white shirt. And I got my finger down in the collar of his shirt. And I was going to rip his shirt, and when I jerked, I broke my second finger. Not the ring finger, the one next to the biggest finger on your hand, the one you use when you do the sign. And I broke that at an angle, like a 90-degree angle. The match hadn't started. I hadn't even been introduced yet. And I reached and grabbed it, and I pulled it back into a position where I could bend it. And I bent it into my palm, and I wrestled Harley Race for an hour with a broken finger that I'd broke prior to the start of the match. I didn't cry. In fact, I don't think any of the fans even realized it, that I had broken my finger before it ever started. Some guys were tough, some guys weren't. The gimmicks they began to flow, and then you had the Sheiks come. The big guys, like from Russia, Russian, Russian guys, take Russian names. Germans, the Von Brauners, a great example. The Von Brauners, Saul Weingroff, great, huge, wonderful team. Great talent, a lot of talent. Uh, so it was a changing landscape, for sure, everywhere there, and fans were... Being treated to, some were athletes, some of the stars were athletes, some of them just had gimmicks. You were seeing a little bit of everything. It was a changing atmosphere, and I think a lot of it had to do with television.
2: And now it's time without further ado to ask the stud. We don't need any television for this. This is imagination. This is you interacting with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Stud, first question. Go ahead, my friend.
1: This is from Shannon Fuller. I like that last name. Shannon Fuller from Troy, Alabama. Question is, do you think the fans are more intense now or back in the 70s and 80s? Pretty easy one for me. I don't think there's any comparison between the two. I think that what happens now with Vince and with his style of business that he operates, people like the sport. They still like the sport, but it is not the sport it was back in the 70s and 80s. They don't believe they just know the curtain's been pulled back and they say this is all phony and uh, you know let's just go and watch it and have a good time well it was totally different in the 70s and 80s people had a respect for it and they enjoyed the sport they saw things that don't happen obviously in today's wrestling they saw these matches like dad and mario had in which They stop it after five minutes and both guys have to be carried to the dressing room. They don't see those type of things anymore and they never will again. I remember wrestling in cities even outside of America in the 70s and 80s where There was such enthusiasm amongst the crowd and intensity. I would come into buildings in which we had had a great TV the Saturday before. You've got a world championship. I remember Knoxville having three world championships on one card. You got the world heavyweight championship. That was me and Harley race. You've got the world junior heavyweight championship, Jimmy Golden against Nelson Royal and the world Women's Championship, the Fabulous Moolah against whoever that might be. And then card underneath that. The crowd would be at at a pitch before the bell even rang. When the bell rang for the first match, there was a roar from the crowd. The intensity was already there. You didn't have to go to the ring to provide it, and you didn't have to go to the ring to produce it. It was there from the very beginning. And so my answer, obviously, is... I think in the 70s and 80s, there's no comparison to the intensity of those crowds as compared to the ones that Vince has today. Shannon
2: Fuller and Troy, Alabama, thank you for the question. Let's get to the second one today, Stud, and one postscript. Why would people today believe what they see when the promoters themselves present it like a cartoon? Why would anybody respect the sport when it's not respected by those that present it? And it's a shame To the athletes who are in the ring, because the athletes who are in the ring, there's a lot of really great wrestlers out there, but it's a shame that the business has changed so much that they can't affect what we see. And that's my two cents, which will absolutely mean nothing to nobody, but I had to get that in there.
1: Stud, question two. A guy named Blue Gilliard. He's from Wetumpka, Alabama. What was your craziest, scariest encounter with a fan? Great question. Because we're talking about in the 70s and 80s and the 60s at a time in which sometimes your most dangerous opponent is the fans. If you're a heel... You've got to watch your back at all times. An example, my dad was not a heel. He was a baby face. And in 1965 in Marietta, Georgia, the heels were in trouble. And he went from his dressing room to try to help them get to their dressing room. He's a good guy. And he gets cut 55 stitches twice in two rows by, I don't know how deep, The inside-outside so job on the right side of his body could have killed him. If they stabbed him rather than just slice him, he might not have been here. Now, that's a good guy. I've been through some hair-raising incidents. I came out of Knoxville, Tennessee. The building set up on top of a hill. It had stairs that went all the way down to, it was in a park in an amusement park and the building was called the Jacobs administration building. That's where, when I bought the business, that's where the matches were located. I had such heat that I came out one night and I had a policeman always followed me to the car. And on this night, the policeman's behind me instead of from in front of me. And I come out the door. There's not a lot of people there, but there are a few people there. And I see a guy coming toward me and when he gets close enough, He has a gun and when he raises his hand to pull the trigger, I knock his arm down and he shoots himself in the leg. He rolls off down the stairs and this is probably, I'm going to say, it's probably a hundred stairs. Down, 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 down. I'm watching him roll down the stairs. He gets up, the cop now starts down there after him, he gets up, he's limping And he runs through the amusement park and goes out on a street named Magnolia right there by Chohowie Park was the name of the park. And he went into a barbecue restaurant and sits down trying to hide from the policeman and loses so much blood he passes out and they catch him in that. It was called the tick tock restaurant. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. And I was cut in Panama City during the match with Ricky Gibson and Robert Gibson of uh, Rock and Roll Express fame, Ricky and Robert. And I was wrestling partners with David Schultz and we had a riot in Panama City, Florida. And someone cut me when I was reaching out to grab Ricky Gibson and pull him back in the ring. I've been in riots in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I've been in lots of riots in Knoxville, in Kentucky, Harlan, Kentucky, really, really dangerous part of the country in which I had to hire somebody to watch the Mongolian Stomper. He wouldn't even go to those towns unless he had a bodyguard. So I had to hire somebody to watch his back or he wouldn't even have worked those towns in Kentucky. So I would say the craziest encounter was the guy with the gun. It was dangerous for heels. You really had to watch out for yourself. In a sick way,
2: It's a real compliment to you that somebody would actually take the time to raise a gun at you, take the time to take a blade and actually care enough to stab you. That means that as a heel, you've done your job, yes?
1: Oh, absolutely. I don't tell the story out of fear. I'm kind of proud of I was doing a tremendous job, obviously, and, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. I was trying to build a business. I was a young guy. It was my first experience as a heel, and I was taking it to the limit. In Panama City, this was my second go around, it's my second company. I was a little more mature and experienced, but I still did the same things I did in Knoxville. And we had so much heat in that area where Pensacola was and the Southeastern Southern Division there, that we had so much heat there that I had to have, the heels had to stay every night All night usually go home after their match they leave and disappear but they stayed to help with the riot because there's a riot every night so they knew I said nobody goes home until the last match is over and they were our backup and on many occasions like that Panama City encounter that was the worst riot I was ever in I've never seen as many bodies What happens is you protect yourself and you just start knocking people out. Pretty indiscriminately, you're protecting yourself. In order to get them out of your face, you've got to put them on the ground. And I look back when I went into that dressing room door that night. Before I could close the door, I was the last guy in. There were seven open knives bounced off the walls and, and slid through the dressing room on the dressing room floor. People were throwing open knives at you. It was scary. It was a scary situation. It was dangerous. It was just very dangerous.
2: If you want to take a stab at asking the stud a question, you can do so. Facebook, Ron Fuller Welch is where you'll find him. Also on the website, RonFullerTennesseeStud.com. Final question here as we ask the stud here in Episode 6.
1: All right, this one is from Seth Hanson. Oddly enough, he's from Charlotte, North Carolina. His question is, any territory you never got the chance to work that you would have liked to have? Great question. Because I worked so many territories. I was in so many places that this is a good one for me. I probably would work at least 75% at one time or another of all the territories in America, all the major cities. I worked Los Angeles for LaBelle. Mike LaBelle. I've worked San Francisco. I've worked uh, Portland. I've worked Stu Hart. I've worked in the Vancouver area. I worked uh, all the Fritz's, the Watts's, the Oklahomans, and the Texas, and then uh, the Geigel in Kansas City. I worked Florida. I worked Georgia. I mean, I was practically everywhere, but I never, ever worked for Jim Crockett in North Carolina. That I always wanted to do Jim Crockett ran a tremendous company and he was a f- smart guy and he had great wrestlers there's where your flares were and the Pateras it went on Paul Jones Don Curnoodle just star after star after star back in the days uh, uh, some of them I can't George Scott I just can't remember enough of them off the top of my head But the talent there was very, very good. They ran a good company, a good organization. They had good televisions. They had good bookers. I always wished I had gone there and worked there. And for some reason, I just missed out on it. I never got there. Sorry that I didn't.
2: That's a really great question from Seth Hansen out of Charlotte. And it's ironic that right there in his backyard is the territory that you most wanted to work Because your style and your philosophy so aligns with what they did in Mid-Atlantic. You look at some of the television that survived those days and the way they presented the sport. It was almost pitch perfect, wasn't it, with the way you like to see the sport presented?
1: There you go. That's why i really sad that I didn't go there. They ran a great operation. They had a penchant to have great wrestlers. They liked. To have talent that could move in the ring, guys that worked really close and really stiff, they did a great job. Were they one of the best and maybe the best, possibly, of just about all time. I really do regret that I never got there. I knew a lot of those guys that were there. I ran into them in other places. I knew their names. Paul Jones, I wrestled in Florida. Ric Flair, obviously, everywhere. Uh, A lot of those guys, actually, Patera and Flair wrestled for me in Knoxville one time. I brought them in and asked Jim Crockett if I could use those two guys for one of my big Coliseum shows that I started doing after I'd been there a couple of years. So, yes, it was really good. I think what I want to do today... Tony, is I think I want to give today's winner to uh, Blue Gilliard, the Wetumpka, Alabama question about the scariest encounters with a fan. But all the questions are great. I just really, really love this segment. And as you were saying earlier, Tony, I would love for us to do a program. Just a live program in which fans can call live and I can answer these questions live. It takes it up a notch. It's like wrestling on a television uh, station or wrestling in a big house show. Then you really get a feel for what people are all about. And I think it makes me do even better at what I'm doing here uh, when I can communicate with people face to face and uh, actually talk about these things face to face.
2: Stud, it's been great. Give me a final thought here.
1: I keep doing this at the end of each one. I'm absolutely truthful about this. I'm just humbled with the comments that I get on Facebook page. I'm humbled by the fact that so many people want to hear these things, and they remember me. They compliment me. They make These statements to me about how I have affected their lives and what I did for them, what I did for their parents, some of them talking about younger ones, about their grandparents and how they took them to see me. It's a great place for me to be. It's a great time for us to put this story out there, Tony, because no one can tell this story. No one can go back into the 30s and the 40s and the 20s. It's unique. It is us. It is my product. It is my history. It's my head that keeps all these names and all these things that happen. I just thank the good Lord who has got me here and put me in a position to have a wonderful life. And I give all credit to the good Lord himself. I just look forward to next week
2: and there's no question about that because through 93 years and four generations we are telling the story one that is generational for all you folks listening in stud land i want to say to you that the stud cast is not successful without you it is your stud cast we want to hear from you we want to make this show better on a weekly basis send your suggestions into us and if you want the stud to go back and touch on something in the past that you've always been curious about We will do that. We are here for you, for the voice of all of us here, David Summers down in Dothan, who's done a tremendous job on our imaging. This is Tony Basilio for the stud, for Craig Jenkins, saying have yourself a great Tennessee stud day. And thank you for listening to the Studcast.
0: Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.
1: Hope you have enjoyed today's studcast. This show is distributed by Arcadian Vanguard. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it.